Welcome to Lit with Charles, a podcast on all things literary where I interview people who've either written books or have interesting things to say about them. If you're like me, then you love reading, but maybe you're not sure what you should be reading or maybe you feel intimidated by conversations around books. The main aim of this podcast is to make literature exciting and accessible and hopefully make you discover new books and authors that are off the beaten track. In this podcast, I try to cover all genres and types of books, from serious historical nonfiction to trashy novels, and I talk to all sorts of authors so that it never feels like the same episode twice. I feel like part of the oversimplification of Jane Jacobs is reducing her to an an anti-Robert Moses. Robert Moses was for cars, Jane Jacobs was for walking. Robert Moses was for huge apartment buildings and big projects, and Jane Jacobs was for the incremental and the human scale. I think that that actually undersells Jane Jacobs so, so much. Today's episode follows an interesting literary path. The first stop on that path is a book written in 1974 by Robert Cairo, called The Power Broker. It's one of the most brilliant biographies of all time. If you're looking for a magnificently researched and totally gripping book on the life of one of the most influential men of the 20th century, then this is the one. It's the story of a man called Robert Moses. That name may not mean much to a lot of people, but in short, he's basically the guy who built New York City from the 1930s to the 1960s. Through a finely tuned network of money and power that he put together, Robert Moses was able to decide pretty much single-handedly what was built in New York. Roads, parks, bridges, buildings. He was arguably more powerful than the mayor or even the governor of New York State. But as they say, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And Robert Moses' ideas started spinning out of control and he developed visions of massive highways plowing through New York, and to do that, he was going to tear down vast neighborhoods of the city. The person who ignited the opposition to Robert Moses was a journalist and urban activist called Jane Jacobs. In 1961, she wrote a book called The Death and Life of Great American Cities, in which she outlined a very different path for urban planning one that was more focused on organic human interaction based on historic urban traditions as opposed to abstract planning based on data. It's an unusual book in the sense that it seems quite unscientific and anecdotal on the surface, but it ultimately delivers on sketching out a credible and common sense vision for the city. I was curious to know how she and her book were perceived today in the urban planning community and how this book had aged. I was very lucky to connect with today's guest, Charles Marone, also known as Chuck, who is the founder of Strong Towns, a movement based in Minnesota dedicated to helping cities and towns in the United States achieve financial resiliency through civic engagement and seeks to improve communities through urban planning concepts such as walkability, mixed-use zoning, and infill development. Strong Towns manages a blog and a podcast of the same name, hosted by Chuck. He's also written a book called Strong Towns, which outlines a new way forward for sustainable quality of life in cities of all sizes that breaks with modern wisdom to present a new vision of urban development in the United States. 
In today's episode, Chuck and I discuss the influence of Jane Jacobs' book, the context that surrounded its publication, and how the urban planning debate has evolved over time and what's at stake for cities today. So I'm trying to get a sense of how influential and transformational this book was, The Death and Life of Great American Cities by Jane Jacobs, how influential it was for urban planning and and people who work in this area like yourself. On a scale of one to 10, 10 being seminal, how would you rate this book overall? It'd be hard to say anything short of 10. It would almost be blasphemous, but (laughs) it's a little bit like asking you know, how influential is the Bible? And you would say, well, you know, 10, it's very influential. But then you say, I'm a Christian. How much do its adherents follow the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount or the simple teachings of Jesus? And you would say, well, there's a lot harder than. <laughs> so influential, you know, did people, have people read it and, and struggled with it and tried to understand it and apply its, its thoughts and insights? Absolutely. It is the most important book about cities for the last, you know, 100 years, easily. Wow. But, you know, is it easy to read and understand and apply? No, it's very, very challenging. It's really challenging. Why challenging? What exactly is difficult in the book? I mean, I I did find a lot of it complicated, but from your perspective as an urban planner, what do you you find challenging in it? So, I am an urban planner. I'm also a, a civil engineer. And both of those professions are taught and in a sense believe internally that cities are things that can be managed. They are complicated systems that can be tweaked and refined and honed. And the core basis of every insight that Jane Jacobs has is that that is not true. That cities are complex systems. They are organic beings. They they evolve and adapt and essentially live outside our ability to control. And that means that a lot of the insights are profound and beautiful, but a lot of them go right over the head of people who profess to to love the book and find it very valuable. I mean, there there is an element, when I was reading it, I thought to myself, a lot of this feels somewhat unscientific, mm-hmm. uh, more instinctive. Like she's going with her gut of what she's noticed in her neighborhood in New York. And, oh, well, this butcher has, you know, provide the safety on the sidewalk or, or whatever. But it, it's not very data heavy as we might expect uh, this kind of book would be today or not, not so scientific. Is that part of the charm? And is that part of the challenge? No, I think it's part of the brilliance, right? My favorite chapter in the entire book is the last one. And in the last one, she gives a lesson on how to think. And it, re- it really is. It has nothing to do with cities, urban planning, anything. It's just, here's how you think. And I described this once as you know getting a golf lesson from Tiger Woods. I mean, imagine going out on the greens and having Tiger Woods say, here's, here's how you do this. It, this is one of the most brilliant thinkers of you know the last century telling us how she approaches things. And, and she says some things that I think for a lot of people in an empirical age, one heavy in data and statistics, and here's how, it, it is the exact opposite of that. It, she talks about starting with the 
particular and then reasoning to the general. So you start with what you see on the block. You start with what you see in the neighborhood and you draw out of that a theory of how it works as opposed to starting with a theory and then looking for the data to confirm or, or, or disprove. She talks about looking for exceptions. So as soon as you, you know, get a sense of how this works, look for the thing that doesn't work that way. And you, you know, can draw from that inferences about where you're incorrect and where you don't understand things. The fascinating thing about that form of reasoning is it's the same kind of reasoning that someone like Einstein used to come up with the theory of relativity. Oh, right. Einstein did not start from large, massive theories and derive new insights out of it. What Einstein did is he observed, said that, you know, these things don't line up with classic Newtonian physics, how would I explain this to myself? Um, I feel like Jane Jacobs is like the Einstein of urbanism and city planning, and her, her, her reasoning process is very much the same. Let's maybe uh, take a step back, and I'd love to hear from you more about the context in which this book was developed and, and how Jane Jacobs got to influence the debate in urban planning. What's the context when this book was published? What's happening in 1961 oh. that prompts Jacobs to write this? I mean, this is the explosion after World War II, right? It, you know, we went through the Great Depression and World War II. And when we got out of World War II, the economists in the country were freaked out that we were going to slide right back into the Great Depression. I instead, what we did is we had the largest boom in human history really we we and we did it by transforming a continent around kind of a new idea of how to build cities cities are these ancient things if you think of human evolution well think of it this way let's say that an alien species comes and and studies life on earth they would see bees living in beehives. They would see ants living in anthills. They would see uh, whales living in oceans. And they would see humans building these cities, starting at the very small tribe level up into you know, very, very massive things. But around the world, for tens of thousands, you know, some even suggest longer than that, cities would have looked very similar in terms of their layout and design and scale and the different things that humans would have to have in them. All of a sudden, at the end of World War II, we started to build cities in like a radically different way. Can you quickly illustrate some of the radical departures pre and post World War II? Yeah, I, I think that the easiest one to grasp, and it's easy and it gets oversimplified often, is just the automobile, right? I mean, cities prior to the Great Depression were scaled around what a human could walk in a day really? or, you know, in very large cities, you know, what, what a train or a trolley system could get you to. But even those places, when you got on and off, you walked. And so the neighborhoods themselves were scaled and built around people who walked. Th th this means that the way the buildings address the street, the way the architecture is laid out, the symmetry of the buildings, how far your park is to your cemetery, to your collection of waste, all this was all, you know, scaled to what humans walking would grasp. <laughs> Think of even just like a sign on the street. Your sign would be, you know, handwritten. It, it would be so <laughs> someone walking by could see it. Now all of a sudden, inject the automobile into cities. And the city becomes not only very mechanical, but it becomes scaled in a different way. 
you're driving by in a car and your sign needs to have three foot letters so that you can see it as you pass by. Well, take that and magnify that over everything. And, you know, you, you get a radically different place. Now add to that, you know, the, the post-war finance that we did, the fact that we did this not incrementally over time, but like at scale radically everywhere all at once. You know, Jane Jacobs, a lot of what animated her was the fights over urban renewal and, you know, the highway building that would go right through the middle of neighborhoods and take out whole entire blocks of fabric of a community and just bear waste to it, right? This is a radical, radical departure from thousands of years of, in a sense, accumulated wisdom of how to build places. We tossed it out and came up with a brand new system and did it in a couple decades. I'm surprised that in this answer, you didn't mention one name about the oh, right. context. I'm guessing Robert Moses, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Can you explain to our listeners maybe who he is? And in a way, if I understand correctly, he was Jane Jacobs. They were nemeses. They were arch enemies, I guess, in, in their way of thinking about cities. Yeah. And she's ultimately, Jane Jacobs, as I understand it, the, the lady who led the campaign to bring down Robert Moses. Yeah, they are opposites in so many ways. And I think every good, you know, every good story needs a, a villain. Robert Moses is the villain, but he is the villain in a way that I think any good villain is, right? He's a way we can all relate to. I, I think if modern planners and modern engineers don't see themselves in Robert Moses, they're not paying attention, right? So Robert Moses was, at one point he was the parks commissioner, then he became like basically the public works director of, of New York City. He was the architect, he was the designer, he was in a sense the urban planner of New York. And all the major public works projects from the large bridges to, uh, you know, the, the highways running through Central Park and, and, you know, running through all the neighborhoods of New York. These were his, uh, visions. These were his, uh, executions. These were the projects that he led to fruition. And he had an outsized impact, not only on New York City itself, but on New York State in general. I mean, he was the, the book about him, the power broker is, about his life. And I, I think that that is the term you would use. I mean, he was the power broker of post-World War II development. And his approach and his ideas and his way of doing things was, in a sense, copied across the entire continent. I mean, the things that he pioneered and did became the basis of not just state policy, but federal policy and, and adopted, copied wholesale by Robert Moses' acolytes all around the country. So it seems on on the one hand, we've got Robert Moses, and, and I've read The Power Broker, and it's a, an absolutely fantastic book. It's actually the, my pathway to this conversation. He seems, as I understand it, to represent a very rational, structured, calculated way to design cities around automobiles, as you pointed out. And Jane Jacobs, it seems, is a more grassroots thinker and, and – uh, more attached to the human aspect of cities. Can one resume it more or less like that, the dichotomy between the two? I find myself not wholly rejecting what you just said, but I find myself pushing back on it because I feel like part of the oversimplification of Jane Jacobs 
is reducing her to an, an anti-Robert Moses. Robert Moses was for cars. Jane Jacobs was for walking. Robert Moses was for huge apartment buildings and big projects. And Jane Jacobs was for the, the incremental and the human scale. I think that that actually undersells Jane Jacobs so, so much. She has this term that she coined that is quoted often in planning circles, the sidewalk ballet. In using that term, she describes the way someone navigates a street, a ballet on a sidewalk, and they will be walking amongst other humans. There's an interaction there between the humans, a ballet. They will interact with the storefronts. They will interact with the windows and what's inside of them. They'll re be repelled by the, the things that are out of place. They'll be uh, welcomed and warmed by the things that uh, fit in the neighborhood. A lot of planners and a lot of urban advocates see Robert Moses as being like the car person. So he's anti-sidewalk. And then they take out of the term sidewalk ballet, sidewalk, right? Like sidewalk's the most important thing. But for Jane Jacobs, the most important thing was the ballet. Mm -hmm. It was the dance. It was the complexity of the whole operation. I mean, if, if you don't start with the ballet, the sidewalk is as inanimate. I mean, Robert Moses provided sidewalks. So I, I feel like the tension between the two is less over a lot of the things that we even fight over today, you know, like sidewalks or not, or how much space is given to cars versus people walking. I mean, these are mechanical things. I think the actual fight was over Robert Moses's vision of a city that was mechanical, that could be fine-tuned like an automobile engine. If we just move this here, we can get flow over here. And if we just knock down this building here, uh, we'll get this kind of redevelopment in this spot. And Jane Jacobs, I think more challenging, more honest and more accurate view of a city as this organic system that defies our ability to tinker with it. Jane Jacobs is a humble vision of what our capacity is and a grand vision of a city. And I think Robert Moses's vision is a grand vision of humans, mm -hmm. but a very sh limited and short-sighted view of what a city actually is. So with hindsight, what are the key elements where you think she's really been validated with the passing of time? And uh, in which areas, if any, do you think she was maybe wrong in her assessments of the city? Wow. Okay. This is the challenging part of Jane Jacobs is that she has not been invalidated by anything, but nothing that she has really put forth has come to fruition. Uh -huh. You know, I'll, I'll go back to the Bible, which I, I mentioned at the beginning, and I, I'm not trying to turn Jane Jacob into a Messiah figure, <laughs> but I, I do think that, you know, you look at like the simple teachings of Jesus to, you know, love your neighbor and blessed are the poor. Have these been invalidated over time? Well, I don't think so. I mean, I think they're more relevant today. Would you say that they have been embodied by humans that have come after? Well, you know, there are whole books about Western culture and how it's descendant from Christian values and Christian ethics, but it would be very hard for me as a Christian to look around and say, you know, we live in a society that elevates the poor. You know, we live in a society that, you know, where we are in a sense reinforced every day to love thy neighbor. It's a, these are challenging, challenging human teachings. I feel like Jane Jacobs teachings, Jane Jacobs insights, you know, the, the, the things that she shared with us when she was here, 
are really, I don't want to say incapable of being invalidated. Um, they are observations of humanity. But I think where she was wrong is I, I, I think she felt like we would perhaps return to this or perhaps, you know, this was a state that humans would desire. And I think humans in general seem to desire a more Robert Moses type approach, a more Robert Moses kind of set of responses. And, you know, we tend to embrace even the most ardent advocates today of cities and urbanism and walkability and all this embrace a Robert Moses mindset when it comes to that. So it almost sounds like Jane Jacobs in a way, her, her thinking and her writing is almost normative, i.e. it ought to be like this. It could be like that. It should, we should try to build cities like that, but it's, it's not a question of whether it's actually been done or not. It, it was a, a sort of teaching of what could and should be done. This is a great question because I feel like, you know, I've referenced the Bible a couple of times here and I do feel like this is a, this is a huge divergence from this, right? Because when you listen to Jesus, Jesus was talking about a heaven on earth, like what could be. And Jane Jacobs was talking about what was and worked and then has been destroyed by, in a sense, a modern approach or a modern thinking about cities. So Jane Jacobs is describing the way cities actually work and the way that they have historically worked. And maybe a better analogy is to go to a beehive. It would be as if the bees woke up one day and said, you know what would be really great for honey production is if we created like bee cul-de-sacs over here and bee strip malls over here and, uh, you know, tore down this and made a bee hallway through the middle of our hive. And then the bees all went nuts and neurotic and someone stood up and said, you know what? It worked a lot better when we did it this way. <laughs> I feel like Jane Jacobs is pointing us back to the way cities have traditionally worked and giving us those sets of insights it's up to us to kind of hear that and embrace it. Since the days of Jane Jacobs in the last 60 plus years, what are some new issues in urban planning debates today that are not featured in the book or that you feel have evolved since then? Or what new elements are at stake today in contemporary discussions around urban planning? That also is really interesting because I, I feel like the answer is the evolution of a lot of the things Jane Jacobs pointed out have in a sense come to fruition. I mean, we what's the number one urban issue today? I would say it's a housing affordability problem. In Jane Jacobs' day, I'm not going to say there were no housing affordability issues, but really housing was cheap. It was abundant. It was affordable. It wasn't very high quality. And Jane Jacobs talked about like the evolution of the quality of housing. And she laid out a case that I think would be an anthema to a lot of advocates today for housing because she talked about needing basically starter housing. She, you needed lower quality housing as a way for people to get their start. Today, what we have done largely is, is taken out that bottom rung of starter housing. And we've made the bottom rung very, very high. You have to have a, a mortgage, a reliable job, all this to get most housing now. And what this has done is it's created an epidemic of homelessness. It's created an epidemic of housing affordability. It's created a very stagnant system. She, in many ways, foresaw all of this. I mean, she laid this out. But these weren't the issues that animated her because they had you know, yet come to pass. She has some quite specific policy ideas around that and around the financing sources of 
new housing. In fact, for me, that was almost the most specific aspect of the book, the most direct policy element where she outlines quite a program, it seems. Yes. Yes. She, um, I love her so much. (laughs) I can tell. (laughs) Yeah. I I can imagine people today because I've, you know, I am in a very, very tiny, tiny, insignificant way doing a, a similar project to her in the sense that I, you know, I've been writing this blog for 15 years now. And it's funny because when I talk about things of planning and engineering, people listen and they're like, oh, okay, I might agree with you or disagree with you. But if I ever talk about anything with finance or economics, there's always a group that stands up and says, you are not trained in this. You don't know what you're talking about. Stay in your lane. And it can be actually kind of cruel and mean. I imagine her, every every time I get this feedback, I imagine her going through this because, you know, you're a woman in the 1960s who is a journalist who has no, you know, training in a sense in urban planning or engineering like I have or economics or, and, and you're dealing in a world that, you know, this was the time of America where, what did Kennedy call the Kennedy's cabinet? Like this, you know, collection of geniuses. Oh yeah, the, the best and the brightest. Right, the best and the brightest. You know, we we had this vision of America that if we just got the best and brightest together in a room, you know, the most highly educated, highly influential, the the top graduates from the major universities, that they could figure out all of our problems. And here's this humble woman from the middle of a city saying these profound things. And I have to believe that a lot of the pain that she probably experienced was in the feedback of stay in your lane. What are you talking about? You don't know anything about this. This is interesting because it comes back to my earlier question. You know, a lot of the book feels so unscientific and and driven from the instinct and the gut of these observations. So how did she manage to build this credibility in the face of, of these people that you described, the best and the brightest, the the Robert Moses boys who uh, thought they knew better, the, you know, had all the data to prove it, and so on. How did she bring out this book and build this influence? Uh, this is was there a, a political angle, or was there a, a sort of social angle? I, I I struggle to understand how she emerged. I mean, first of all, she was touching into something very real. But I think the enduring part of it is easy to understand. This speaks to the real experience of human beings living in cities. A lot of people can get their minds wrapped around, you know, going to a public meeting for a road expansion project or, uh, you know, today we're going to add a bike lane here or we're going to remove parking over there or we're going to build this apartment building here and listen to all the people show up against every little aspect of it and, and have the project advocates show up with their data and their charts. And when you sit through this once, you realize that this is theater and circus, and it really is doesn't make any sense to the reality that you live. <laughs> when you sit through it multiple times, you start to recognize that there's something deeper here. There's something like broken about these institutions and systems that we've set up. I think Jane Jacobs' work resonates so deeply because it actually explains the the absurdity, the, the circus of treating the city as it's a mechanical machine, right? As if it, there's some levers you can pull or processes you can set up to mitigate what you know is really a bottom-up kind of human creation. 
So when she was writing this stuff, the thing that has given it its longevity and its resonance is not her credentials and it's not the data that she provides. It's just the fact that people can relate to everything she says. There was something authentic about it. Well, I guess. and not in a populist kind of way either. Not in a, you know, like, you know, th this is unfair and rabble unjust. Rousing, right. Yeah. It's not a rabble. It is deeply intellectual, but it's deeply intellectual in a powerful way that people who grapple with these problems find solace in. Here's someone who's done all the heavy lifting for us, right? Like here's someone who sat and struggled with things that were deep and painful and then emerged with this so that we, in a sense, can start where she left off. And I, I think that's why it resonates so much. The title and the scope of the book is focused on America, as its title suggests. I'm curious on a global perspective, what, what are some major differences between American cities, European cities, Asian cities? What are some of the notable differences? That's an interesting question. I'm in many ways unqualified to answer. I, I've been able to travel a lot, but like Asia has eluded me thus far and uh, Africa has eluded me. And I, I hope to change that soon. But let me speak from my understanding and my observations. Much like American culture, America has exported its vision of prosperity to a, a lot of the world. And what we see is that you go to European cities, they existed, you know, my, my house here in my hometown is 110 years old. Uh, that would be a relatively new structure in much of the world. And so most other places around the world were built and matured and experienced successive generations before kind of the emergence of this American suburban experiment. But we see the the appendages of it in places. I, I was in Ireland back in the like the early part of the millennium, like in 2000, 2001. And you'd see these like little towns that were just the old, like it, it had, people for hundreds of years had to be having, you know, a, a drink in this pub. And then you'd go out on the edge of town and there would be 10 American homes, like lined up with the garages and the cul-de-sac and all that. And like, what is this? And that became their housing bubble, right? That just like destroyed their economy. You see this all over Europe where when affluent people have an opportunity, they copy America and they build American style of development in ways that are perplexing. I've seen the images from the Middle East. I have friends that have worked on this stuff throughout the Gulf region and they attest the same thing. You know, when, when you become affluent, you copy American styles of development. And whether this is a cultural export, uh, which I, I think is one argument that is a cultural export. Another is like, this is what happens when you get enough money to pretend that you're God, right? When you get enough money to pretend that you can fix things, this is where you end up. I say that fix things, there's a lot packed into that. Jane Jacobs would argue that cities can never be perfect. They can never be fixed. They are always works in progress, harmonizing different stresses and tensions. When you get sick of that, like I'm, I'm done with that. Like I don't want to have to work out problems. I don't want to have to think. I'm just going to build the perfect thing right the first time and be done with it. You come to what we try to do at the end of World War II. And so you go out and build, here's the ideal suburb, here's the ideal development, here's the ideal city. 
And you wind up with places that work for a brief period of time and then mm -hmm. become really, really nasty. And that is the thing that we see repeated over and over and over around the world. Is it a byproduct of our culture? Is it a byproduct of our affluence? Maybe it's a combination. Which then brings me to my next question, which is to ask you about your organization, your podcast, uh, Strong Towns. Uh, you have a certain vision and idea around uh, the city that I believe conflicts with what you just outlined in terms of this American export of these you know, very widespread suburbs. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on and what your your beliefs are with regard to the city? Yeah. I started writing a blog back in 2008 trying to explain why cities were going broke. And it has grown into this, yeah, uh, international organization now. We advocate for a different style of development. And we're talking about Jane Jacobs. I would like to think that Jane Jacobs would look at what we're doing and say, you know, thank you. Like, this is exactly what I would like to see. But we argue for, we advocate for a bottom-up approach to city building as an antidote to kind of the breakdown and the struggles and the problems that we see in cities all over the world. And so we do a lot of podcasting ourselves. We do uh, writing. We have a website that is a couple million visitors a year where we publish two, three articles every day of the week. We're active on all the social media platforms. Over the last couple of years, we've started to now actually work with and coach cities, mm -hmm. train different action teams and different groups within cities to respond to their problems in kind of unique, novel ways, taking the things that they do and, and, and sharing them out with people. Uh, we've had a bunch of local groups start in our name. So we started to see these, you know, Strong Towns Tulsa, Strong Towns Dallas, Strong Towns Seattle pop up. And we started to organize those groups. We now have uh, a couple hundred of them and we have 800 that are in formation process right now. So we have Gosh. hundreds and hundreds of groups around the world that are working to put Jane Jacobs style of ideas to work in cities from at the block level, at the neighborhood level, starting and advocating from the bottom up. And if I've done my homework correctly, at the heart of this is a, a drive towards more density in the, in the city to make cities more yeah, dense. Or am I getting this right? Or, or is that only one element of it? No, no, it's okay. It's funny because I wrote an article, Density is Not the Solution. <laughs> this is one of those places where I think Jane Jacobs is oversimplified, right? Like Jane Jacobs talks a lot about density and how density is part of the answer to our, our problems and density solves a lot of things. And a lot of people read, you know, life and death and they take away from it, well, we need, we need more density. And I think if we look at like urban planning in general, urban planners tend to use the blunt instrument of zoning to say, well, if we can just create more density here, we'll be doing what Jane Jacobs said and we'll get good results. The reality is, is that density is a byproduct of good development form. Mm -hmm. And so when you set out to create density and you use Robert Moses kind of means, you end up with places that are, you know, great density metrics, but are ultimately very despotic and inhuman and don't endure. If you start out with urban form, uh, with bottom-up kind of approaches, 
if you approach things incrementally and say, how do we do the next level of intensity? How do we build a place that is more productive? Uh, you ultimately end up with density, but density is not the thing you were shooting for. It's a byproduct of success. I see. So that's like a strong town's nuance. Mm -hmm. Those are the kind of things we talk about a lot. <laughs> We've recently seen uh, in the last few years, one of the biggest challenges to urban areas in the form of COVID. Uh, a lot of cities around the world and in the US were really painfully affected uh, by that. For example, here in London, one of the major uh, developments of the 80s, a business district called Canary Wharf is under a lot of stress because people don't want to go to offices anymore. And so you've got a lot of empty towers. And what are some of the lessons and future outcomes that you think come out of the COVID period in terms of urban planning? How did the world of urbanism pivot, if at all, in this time? I hope that the lesson is not that COVID, you know, killed Canary Wharf, for example, right? Because to me, that that is the wrong lesson. The lesson is that Canary Wharf and other similar, I mean, I'm, I'm in Minnesota in the United States. I was down in Minneapolis recently and, you know, the core downtown is a lot of office towers and we have a skyway system because it's very cold. And so the second story has basically is the winter sidewalk area. It's dead. It's completely empty. And that wasn't the case pre-COVID. You can look at that and say, well, COVID killed it, but actually it was a development pattern that was really, really fragile, mm -hmm. that was not kind of designed to endure. It, it was a development pattern. It was a way of building these office towers and have commuters come in. And this was something we came up with that we thought would be a good idea, but hadn't been, in a sense, tested over time, hadn't evolved out of something. It, it was something we created. And largely, I'm going to say this, it was a financial product that we could sell that worked really well from a GDP standpoint. These were never buildings designed to endure. These were never places that were adaptable, resilient, could become different things. Mm. If we look at traditional development, what we see is that the bank can evolve and become an apartment building. The, the hotel can evolve and become condos. The, the little bakery can evolve and become an attorney's office, can evolve and become a clothier. This pattern of development that Jane Jacobs centers on is one where you don't have to be able to predict the future. And if things go bad, it can adapt and change and become something else. Canary Wharf, downtown Minneapolis, these big office complexes that we have, um, they are in a sense dinosaurs. And you can look and say that COVID was the, the meteorite that wiped them out, okay. But the reality is that a lot of things survived the meteorite, but the dinosaurs didn't because they didn't, they weren't able to adapt. They were too big and clumsy and had too much nutrient demand to be able to survive. Talking of books uh, around urbanism, I'm wondering if Jane Jacobs' book is the Bible. Are there other books, more recent books, that you might recommend to our listeners that you feel are particularly influential in the field of urban planning? Oh, influential books is a, I mean, anything by Christopher Alexander is not going to be a good read, but is essential, <laughs> right? It's not designed to be read like a novel, but the, the greatest insights. My epiphany came with Suburban Nation. And, and what is the fundamental uh, direction of these books? 
Well, Suburban Nation is a sense. What Jane Jacobs has done for thinking in cities, Suburban Nation just disassembles the suburban experiment of the U.S. It, it just is here. Here is why it doesn't work, and here's why you're experiencing the the frustrations you are. I feel like, um, you know, Jeff Speck's Walkable City, Charles Montgomery Happy City. I feel like these, um, you know, Happy City is a wonderful book that touches on like so many different aspects of of urban planning. Um, these are phenomenal books. We're going to move on to our quick section question where I ask you not so much about cities anymore, but more about your uh, personal literary tastes and, and what you've been reading and enjoying or not enjoying lately. And we'll start with the question, what's your favorite book that I probably have not heard of? Okay. Let me throw one at you. And this is Jane Jacobs related, but you probably haven't heard of this. The Lives of a Cell. Nope. Never heard of it. I don't even know who wrote this book. <laughs> the Lives of a Cell is essentially microbiology, but as applied to cities and systems and humans. So it looks, in a sense, it's, it's like a fractal look at the world. So here's how the world functions, and here's how a cell functions. Mm -hmm. And a cell is like a small fractal version of the world. And it's almost like an, a, an analogy but it has a little bit of science and a little bit of observation, kind of Jane Jacobsy insights mm -hmm. into the way systems work based on the, what we know about cells. Interesting. Thank you. Uh, yeah. What's the best book that you've read in the last 12 months? <laughs> I'm going to have to say The One. Okay. Uh, it's The One, and I've got, hang on, I've got it right here. How an Ancient Idea Holds the Future of Physics. Oof, that sounds heavy. It's by a guy named Henrik... Pass, I think is how you would say that. Okay, physics as an undertaking has been stuck for 60 years. There was a bunch of insights after Einstein, a bunch of insights about quantum mechanics. But since then, it's been all kind of experimental and all like mechanical. There's not been any new theory that has emerged that has explained things. And anytime you get a great insight like you know, Einstein's insights, what happens is that it solves the problems of the prior insights, right? Like Newtonian physics explains most of the universe, but then all of a sudden there were all these things that it didn't explain and Einstein explained those, right? But now over time, there's a whole bunch of gaps that Einstein's theories do not explain. There's something else, there's something missing. And the one kind of explores not just the current state of physics, but, but it explores a way forward for physics to get out of its rut right. and to recognize that humans well let me let me give you this if you think of a movie projector an old time movie projector we think of a movie projector as projecting the movie based on the film going through the projector but strip away the film and what is the projector it's just light it's just shining light on a screen and so the movie itself is the absence of light. It's actually taking out some of the mm -hmm. light to animate what is there. The one explores the idea that we are a part of this larger whole, the one. And the way, the reason we exist in the three dimensional plus time, four dimensional world that we exist in. And the way we can, you know, touch the table and not go through it and, and have, you know, uh, consciousness and what have you is because a lot of what exists has been taken out and we are what remains. Mm. 
And what we perceive in our, our experiments and everything else that we're not able to explain is the rest. Wow. Okay. So there are gaps in our world that of things that might have been there before and, and our world is the absence of those things. Yes. So instead of us being and then things springing out of us, like consciousness, it may just be that these things exist and we are but the projection of them. And the one explores this and explores it from a philosophical standpoint, from a physics theoretical standpoint, and it also explores it from like a theological standpoint. On the flip side of that coin, what's a book that you find overrated? I don't know. I have to tell you, I realized years ago that I could read about 50 or 60 books a year and that that meant I had about 2,000 left in my life. I have exactly the same theory. I'm not going to waste my time on bad books. Yeah, like I will tell you, there's a book called The Donut Economics or something like that, that was given to me by like eight people. Like, oh, Chuck, you need to read this. And I read it and I tried to like it and I tried to find insights in it. And there's some in there that are really good, but I think for the most part, it misses the mark. The people who gave it to me had really good intentions, I think, but I think that they are stuck in a Robert Moses mm-hmm. mindset about economics. And Jane Jacobs, I mean, to me, Life and Death of Great American Cities is a wonderful book. It's not Jane Jacobs' best book. <laughs> I, I, I find, you know, the economy of cities to be her most brilliant. Is that book. right? Okay. Yeah. And I think when you, when you get into that and you start to apply the same frame of thinking to economics and the economy of cities, you end up in a place where a book like, you know, the latest economic fad becomes kind of silly. What single book would you take to a desert island? I mean, I would take the Bible. <laughs> just just because it's probably the book I, you know, it's the book I read the most and that I struggle with the most, right? The reason why the Bible endures thousands of years, whether you're theological or not, is because it has insights that people can struggle with over and over. If you took out the Bible and said, you know, something that would would you could read again and again and again, I, I do tend to read the Lord of the Rings every uh-huh. year. Just because I, I find it at a certain time of the the calendar cycle, it kind of refocuses my brain. In what way does it refocus your brain? And in what part of the calendar cycle? Well, I, I tend to read it in the middle of Lent. Like I tend to read it towards, as you get closer to Easter. It's one of these books of, you know, I think if you read it in a trite way, you know, it's a fantasy novel. That's certainly not how Tolkien wrote it. If you read it in a, in I think a less trite way, you get a story of good and evil, but with a lot of gray area on the margin. There is clearly a good and there's clearly an evil, but the characters that you grow intimate with in the story struggle with their own, I'm going to say humanity, they're not humans, that they struggle with- That dichotomy. Yeah. And so, you know, you can hate orcs and want to kill them, but then you find out that they're actually elves who have been abused. And, you know, you can say that, you know, the hobbit is the hero, but the hobbit questions himself and doubts himself. And it is a beautiful, beautiful book. And finally, last question, what book changed your mind? Well, there's a lot of books that have influenced my thinking and and changed. Like, I, I feel like there had to have been something back in the late 1990s. I'll give you one. There's a Malcolm Gladwell book called What the Dog Saw. And it's just a collection of his essays. And there's an essay in that book called Blowing Up. 
And it is the story of Nassim Taleb and Victor Niederhofer. And I do think that that one particular essay in that one book did more to change my worldview than anything else. I didn't read that essay and go, I believed one thing coming in and then afterwards I believed another thing. But I read that book at a time where I was struggling and, and let me, you know, not to overstate my struggles, but I think of like Einstein walking down the street and looking at the clock and having the epiphany about space time as being like, I'm struggling with this. And then I had this epiphany and it moved me. I felt like I was struggling with my life as an engineer and my life as a planner and doing very mechanical things and not having them work out and not really having an explanation of why. And when I read that article called Blowing Up from What the Dog Saw, it gave me this massive boost of, okay, dummy, here's, wh here's why. I have read that or listened to that on audiobook a hundred times because they were talking about the world of finance and derivatives trading and options trading and all that. And I was working in the realm of cities and places and engineering and planning. And so the, the, the idea of taking this two different ways of viewing the world, the, the Niederhofer way of everything can be tested and verified and use data and be empirical and the Taleb way of looking at the world, which is it's very complex and you can't, you have to know the limits of what you can know and you have to work within that to reconcile that into the world of planning took me a, a decade. Wow. And I kept going back to that essay over and over and over to kind of help reinforce the path I was on. And yet you express that connection so well today. <laughs> we have limits to our understanding, limits to the science and, and thinking in new ways, as Jane Jacobs wrote in her book. On that note, Chuck Maroon, thank you very much for your time. Really enjoyed speaking with you about the book, uh, The Death and Life of Great American Cities by Jane Jacobs. Thank you so much for your insights on urban planning and your great book recommendations. Thank you. The first book I'll mention in this recap is Chuck's book, Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity, published in 2019, which outlines his ideas around cities in the United States. Chuck mentioned that actually his favorite book by Jane Jacobs was The Economy of Cities, published in 1969, which he described as her most brilliant book. His favorite book that I never heard of was The Lives of a Cell by Lewis Thomas, published in 1974. It's a collection of essays that connects biological principles to other disciplines like music, communications, and computers. The best book he's read in the last 12 months was The One, How an Ancient Idea Holds the Future of Physics by Heinrich Pess, published in 2023 which presents the idea that everything in the universe is an aspect of one unified whole. The book he found disappointing in the last 12 months was Donut Economics by Kate Raworth, published in 2017, which examines new way to look at economics and its objectives. The book that he would take to a desert island was The Bible. And finally, the book that changed his mind was What the Dog Saw by Malcolm Gladwell, published in 2009, especially the article Blowing Up, which he found inspirational. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lit with Charles. If you have any suggestions or comments, you can always DM me on my Instagram account, at Lit with Charles. I try to reply to all my DMs. If you enjoyed this episode, 
you should definitely subscribe or follow me. And more importantly, tell your friends and family.